to think like Jesus, to live like Jesus, and to hold the convictions Jesus has will create the same kind of separation that Jesus models for us and shows us as is happening in his life at this phase of his three-year ministry. It's a path that we're going to follow. He pioneers a path of um, being polarized against. One theologian put it this way, this is the phase of progressive polarization, away from Jesus, away from his message, away from his, his person, and ultimately, sadly, away from his saving grace if he is utterly rejected. And uh, this is the path that we follow. People believe our message. They believe the message of the gospel that comes through us, but often people reject us and reject our message just like they did Jesus. And chapter 14 is a preview of things to come. John the Baptist, he will be, he's incarcerated under Herod Antipas and will ultimately be rejected by means of execution. So message ministry of Jesus, message ministry of John, rejection. And we need to have a, um, a recalibrated mindset of expectations as we journey forward in our life. Because we want to carry this message. We want to carry out the mission for Jesus glory to spread his fame, to spread his joy across uh, Alaska and in our, in our sort of sphere of influence. And we want to do it joyfully, but it comes with a measured set of expectations. These expectations begin in your mind and your mindset and your thinking. I want to remind you that we're all growing into Christ-likeness. We're all putting on the armor of God, if you will, and growing in that way and becoming stronger, but it begins in how you think. Christians are automatically moving through this process of change, and it's called a metamorphosis in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, listen to this verse, but be transformed, which is the word metamorphosis. Be transformed, be metamorphosized by the renewal of what? Your mind, that by the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's through our thinking that we test and discern and know what is going on. We've been growing, hopefully, in our understanding of how to view the world around us through this kingdom parable teaching. What have we learned so far? We've basically learned that our world is binary. The first couple parables that talked about the soils and the wheat and the tares, uh, there's good soil and there's hard soil. There are wheat and there are weeds there is, uh, there is eternal life that's sown in the heart of believers by God. And then there is eternal death, seeds of death, where Satan sows those seeds in the hearts of those who reject the gospel. We understand that there's something wrong with the world, and that is sin. Sin is what's wrong with the world. Listen, I, there's a lot of things, that, a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of news clips that you're going to hear about what's wrong with the world. Sin is the issue. And the only solution is grace. And then we learned in terms of the problem of evil through the parables that God is not the author of sin. He's not to be blamed for sin, but there is justice in the end. God is the one who ultimately is separating the wheat from the tares, the bundles that will be thrown into the eternal flame. That's justice in the end, and we have to leave that to God. 
We also learn to have hope in God's mission that it will not be stopped. There's a permeating influence of the gospel throughout all the ages, throughout all the nations. That's pictured in the mustard seed that's sown, that creates the giant tree that can be nested in, and the leaven that permeates the dough of the bread that, that pictures an advancement of the kingdom that cannot be stopped. We've also learned that entrance into the kingdom of God comes by selling everything for the only thing. You sell out completely under the lordship of Christ to gain the treasure hidden in the field. I'll buy it all. I'm going to sell everything for this field to get that treasure. I'm going to sell all my pearls, all my wealth to get the pearl of great price, which is the gospel. That's how you come into the kingdom of God. And then finally, the kind of heavy foreboding reality of the fact that the kingdom of God is going in a trajectory towards final judgment. And it's pictured as the dragnet that we are inside of right now. We are in the boundary of this kingdom, either as a believer or an unbeliever, you're inside this sort of immovable boundary that's closing in, that's calling everyone to account ultimately at the end. This is a kingdom mindset to believe these things. To, to not just know these things or learn these things on Sunday morning, but to actually believe them, to feel these truths, to understand them by conviction. It makes you different. It's a metamorphosis or transformation of thinking that creates a different lifestyle and different set of convictions that will ultimately, watch this, here's the good news, it will ultimately polarize you from this culture because the culture does not believe this way. I'm saying that with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's heavy news. It really is heavy news. To be a believer is heavy. It's hard. It's difficult, but it's joy-filling. It's a new set of priorities. It can give you a sense of relief that you know why things are the way they are and where they're going and what to do about it. It can dampen the drama over all of the in-house debates, political debates, sociological debates, or in-church debates. It sort of quells the fighting when you give over to a transformed mindset. Many said, um, you know, once COVID hit, things would never be the same. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm riding the plane now without a mask and it feels like it used to, right? I mean, I think people are pretty pretty strong in how they, you know, like come across with convictions. Things are never going to be the same. It's the end of the world quoting R.E.M., as I know it, and I feel fine. I mean, it's this crazy, you know, I got it all figured out. Well, the Bible's got it figured out. Scripture, Scripture has it figured out. Not human machinations or mindsets. It's Christ. It's the mind of Christ. And the parables have been a living invitation to see life through the kingdom mindset. Having a transformed mind, which is different than being conformed. We're not conformed to the world. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. So it's understanding this kingdom mindset. It does come with a cost. It, it creates progressive separation. As you die to self, as you die to the world, there's a, there's a cost to following Christ. You're, you're stripped from self and people who are filled with self won't understand that. They won't want to be friends with you in the same way that they used to want to be friends with you. 
Things change, and we have to understand that. It's a progressive polarization. Jesus experienced this. You had the masses who were with him. You had all of Israel coming out to hear him, and then they were dispersing away. The crowds came, and the masses flooded, and then they didn't want to hear it. The Gentiles kind of were wondering whether they would believe, and then you have disciples that were receiving Jesus in this context in Galilee in Gentile territory. Jesus is moving through what I've titled or given you as an outline header, four levels of progressive polarization, four levels or four phases of progressive polarization. The first phase is in terms of a position, a position or a status. Jesus' status is Messiah, but I'm going to begin at verses 51 and 52 with this first header, this first phase of being polarized against and Just listen as I read, as I sort of define this point. Jesus asked, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who builds out, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Scribe, that's where I'm getting this first point. Jesus calls all of his followers All his true disciples, he calls them scribes. But ultimately, that title or that position is not going to keep you in good favor with anybody. And neither did Jesus' title as Messiah or Son of Man, which is a direct link to Daniel 7. His titles and accolades and and sort of, uh, you know, initials behind your name are not going to keep you in good standing with people if you are a disciple of Christ, a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins, he's talking still up in Capernaum, that area right around the Sea of Galilee. He's finished his teaching on the parables per se. And he says, have you understood these things? Do you have the mindset, the convictional metamorphosized mindset about these parables? And they go, yes. Well, based on that, yes, this is what he said. He said to them, therefore, therefore, because you're saying yes, every scribe who's been trained, that word trained is discipled. It's mathetuthese, or, you know, it's where you get that, that learner disciple word. Every, every scribe who has been discipled for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, which is oike despote. It's, it's, you're a governor of something. You, you now own something. You're an owner of some treasure. If you're in this Um, conviction, if you are in the kingdom of God, then you are this kind of steward. You're this kind of steward. It's a pivot point of commitment that Jesus is calling these disciples to. He's calling them to a life of self-denial, and they are saying, yes, we will go. And he's setting the expectations for what this kind of journey will look like. And he's going to, Matthew's going to give the narrative of Jesus's experience of following this path where he is polarized against. But it begins with the disciples. And Jesus wants to teach them what it looks like to follow this path with an eighth parable. Now, I've said the whole time there are seven parables. This is actually the eighth one. It's sort of a postscript parable or an appendix to the parable teaching that is the how-to of the kingdom of God. How do you apply the parables that have been taught The application comes here. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Bring out is ekbalo. It means to cast it out. We've been called to cast out the gospel like seed. It's just bringing out the new and the old. 
And if you're, if you're like me, when you have something that's old, um, you like to keep it, you like to preserve it, you have certain things that you like to keep nice, maybe like the fine china or um, old antique furniture, you don't want the kids to jump on it or break it. And then you might have something new because maybe, you know, budget is tight or limited and you finally get something new and you're excited about it and you don't necessarily want to share that. What Jesus is saying, he's using as a parable, he's saying, you're a steward or a homeowner with, with treasure. And when people come, you need to give it all. You need to give what's precious to you because it's old and what's precious to you because it's new. You need to be selfless. You need to be giving out this treasure. What is the treasure? The treasure is the message of the kingdom. You give it all out. You say, he began by calling new Christian scribes. Is that a positive thing? Usually scribe is used in a negative way. Grammatus, it means a master of the law, someone who understood well the Hebrew grammar of the Old Testament. Pharisees were scribes often, Pharisee scribes. You also had apocalyptic scribes. They were the ones who would interpret the dark sayings or the hard sayings of the Old Testament. Where are those things going? But those scribes were notoriously known as people who were masters of the law but had no faith. And so they would add traditions to the law and mess it up. In Matthew 15, verse 6, the scribes and Pharisees were said to, for the sake of tradition, they were rebuked by Christ. Christ said, you have made void the word of God. That's a scribe. You've made the Bible a grammar book, or you made it a book of legalism, and you're hurting hearts. They were the members of the Jewish council politically, or the Sanhedrin. But for a Christian, Jesus is saying, you're a different kind of scribe. Every scribe who's been discipled for the kingdom, every Jewish boy that grew up under Hebrew teaching and was taught this way. And then now you've come under the teaching of Christ. You've heard the kingdom parables and the Holy Spirit wakes that up in your heart. That's a scribe that's trained in the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. You've got Old Testament, you've got new. You've got old and new treasure in your storehouse and it's energized by the Holy Spirit and you need to give it out. That's the kind of scribe you are. You're someone who can handle the word of God. You're someone who can handle the truth with stewardship and accuracy. That's who you are as a believer, raised in the scripture, but with the keys that have opened up your heart by the Holy Spirit to understand what it truly means. You can handle the word of God. It's a title for believers under the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. It's probably Jews in heritage who now understand the scripture with clarity and they have accountability to impart the message. Psalm 119, 99, the writer says, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. It's where you believe the scripture is truth. You're not just making A's in Bible class. The parable pictures the master of the house. He's the oiko despote. He owns the treasure. He owns what was buried in the field, and it's, it's awesome to him. He's now a city on a hill, an ambassador, a town crier. He's unashamed of the gospel. He would never hide the word of God under a bowl. But he's willing to say things that are, that are exciting, like a pearl of great price or a treasure in a field, and also something really hard where there's accountability. There's a dragnet. You're within the boundaries. Judgment is coming. Heaven is forever, and so is hell. You're saying it all. You're saying everything new and everything old, everything that is vintage, old, or fresh and new. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus said, Do not 
think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus post Jesus' resurrection met with Jesus and their hearts burned within them because Jesus explained himself in light of the law and the prophets. He was the fulfillment of it all, old and new. We share the whole of the message. We don't just share Jesus' love, God is love, without saying there's also a God, this same God who is the God of wrath. God is present in heaven. He's also present over hell. He is the ultimate savior. He's the ultimate eternal executioner. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. Jesus absorbed the Father's wrath on the cross on your behalf. That's what makes the good news so good. The good news is not something to be taken lightly. It's something that actually exposes all of our sin that put Jesus on the cross, but we can repent of that sin, become a believer, and be given saving grace. But that's grace with gravity, is it not? And accountability to live for Christ. It's not just a get out of jail free card. The Bible, we believe all of the scripture, not part of the scripture. We're verbal plenary inspiration, sufficiency and authority of scripture. This is what the word of God is. It's not just your red letter edition where you pick and choose the words of Christ that you want and leave the other stuff. Or, you know, we believe this part is encouraging and inspired and the other part is just contextualized in the past and doesn't apply in any way to us whatsoever. All that liberalism loses the whole counsel of God. But Paul in Acts 20 said he preached for three years the whole counsel of God. We don't withhold anything. To withhold the truth is, watch this, classic selfishness, self-preserving. If you preach the truth, people aren't going to like you. There will, there will be a cost. There will be progressive polarization. People will separate from you, but people, on the other hand, will likewise come into the kingdom of God. If you preach a message of self-preservation, you might stay out of the crosshairs, but you won't be walking in the will of God. A soft-sell evangelism does not promote saving grace. To bring it out means to throw it out there. Second Corinthians 5.11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, knowing the reverence of the Lord, knowing the respect of the Lord, we persuade others. What happens when we do this? Well, your title as a scribe before God is precious, but your title as scribe or Christian or believer is really immaterial to those who are rejecting grace. They don't care. Christian in this day and age, even in our American culture, is less and less respected. It's less and less known and revered. And in one sense, that's just in keeping with Scripture. To be a genuine follower of Jesus is what matters, no matter what people think. And your title won't matter. Well, you say, well, if my title won't matter in this culture out here and they hate me because, you know, America's going liberal and they don't like Christians anymore, then I'll just go home. I'll go to my hometown people. I'll go to my locals. They'll love me. Let's see what happened to Jesus. Point two, point two, your place, your hometown will not matter. Your position won't matter. Secondly, your place or your hometown will not matter, verses 53 and 54. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom, this wisdom, and these mighty works? Where did this come from? 
Jesus finished the parables. He went away from there. How far away did he walk? He walked 40 miles from Capernaum. Capernaum was the main base camp town around the Sea of Galilee that was a fisherman's community. And then, and that's where Jesus had a large portion of his teaching and preaching and healing ministry. He healed um, many in that town. He sort of eradicated sickness and and um, brought heaven on earth in that city. And then at that point, he moved down at this point in this unique part in his ministry where he was um, sort of separating from that group of people to go to his hometown, local people, the people he grew up with 40 miles away in Nazareth, in Nazareth. That's where he went to. He's going to his home. It's southwest of Capernaum. It's a little Nazareth town, and and it was kind of a rough town, but that's what he grew up in. People were familiar with him. They knew him from childhood. They knew his brothers. They knew his sisters. They knew Joseph. They knew Mary there, and he would receive a town's welcome, right? Well, Matthew 2, 23, just to show that he was from Nazareth, it said he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, and that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That's where he grew up after he was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He should be called a Nazarene. Matthew four thirteen, leaving Nazareth, he went up to Capernaum. So he was in Nazareth for a while. And then his mission and ministry began in Capernaum. That's what we've been reading through and studying all up to this point in the gospel of Matthew, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is, which is Gentile communities in, um, in this area. That's where Jesus has been ministering to the Jews, but also as a symbol of an outreach to the world, to the Gentile world. And then Luke 4, 16 is another passage. He came to Nazareth. This was early in his ministry after he was baptized by John the Baptist. He first started in Nazareth before he went to Capernaum, where he had been he was in Nazareth where he was brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read. If you'll look over, just keep your thumb in, uh, or finger in Matthew 13, but just look over to Luke chapter 4. The sermon that he preached when he first was in Nazareth, before he went to Capernaum, um, is, is here. He pulled the scroll in the, uh, off the shelf on the Sabbath day, verse 16 where he'd been brought up, and it says, his cust- as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up and to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it's written. This is his sermon of authority, just to give you a taste of what it would have been like to be under the preaching of Jesus. He's reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled the scroll and gave it back up, rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. This is where Jesus returned to. He returns to his hometown after his time in Capernaum. He goes right to the synagogue, the place of authority, where God speaks, where the word of God is presented, and Jesus being the word and being God, it's only appropriate for him to be there. It's perfect. And he's with his local people. It's like going back to your old high school town. I mean, this is his group, right? They're going to receive him and love him. It's a natural arena for him to be there. What did he preach? Well, 
this message might not have been loved because he related about life and death, time and eternity, truth and falsehood, righteousness and sin, God and man, heaven and hell. He taught about regeneration, worship, evangelism, sin, salvation, morality, divorce, murder, service, servanthood, pride, hate, love, anger, jealousy, hypocrisy, prayer, fasting, truth and false doctrine, true and false teachers, the Sabbath, the law, discipleship, grace, blasphemy, signs, wonders, repentance, humility, dying to self, obedience to God, and countless other subjects. All of that according to some other preacher, but he preached those themes. We know he did throughout his preaching ministry, and so we can assume he preached like that there. He was the most gifted preacher ever on the planet, so you would think that would woo the crowds. Well, at first, they were astonished. They were astonished. That's what the text says. They were blown away. They said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works Where did he get this word of God? Where did he get this discernment, this understanding? And that could be taken as a straightforward compliment, right? Where did he learn this? We know he wasn't someone who went to the the rabbi school seminary. We we know he didn't go to Bible class. So what he he didn't he wasn't raised as some erudite scholar. Where did he get where did he get this stuff? Where did he learn these things? Well, first, that can sound like a compliment, but then it can easily digress into sort of an incredulous spirit, a critical spirit. Hey, we've been outstripped here, you know? We knew you when you were just a kid. We knew you when we used to just, you know, play stickball in the park or whatever. And, you know, who do you think you are? That's where this thing leads to. And it just depends on where you put the accent mark on this rhetorical question. Because you can say, wow. Where did he get this wisdom and and these mighty works? Or you could say, where did he get the wisdom and these mighty works? Or I can't believe that he would be trying to come off as smarter than we are. Jesus is the master of the house. He's basically saying he's the fulfillment like he did earlier of the Isaiah prophecy. He's bringing out the new and the old from the storehouse. He's modeling exactly what we're supposed to do. He's saying he is the point of the message of the Bible. And he's validating it with mighty works and mighty powers. Mighty works and mighty powers. He had a massive miracle ministry in his year or so up in Galilee. Now he's doing a few miracles to validate his message. Now, they're not having a problem with the miracles. They're not refuting them. They're not attributing them to Satan. They're not saying that what he's saying is wrong. His wisdom is fine. His miracles are fine. They're just suspicious that it could come from him, from this guy that I went to junior high with or elementary school with. Who does this guy think he is? It's a fine line between being astonished and being incredulous. You can say, I cannot believe this is Jesus. Or you can begin to say, I cannot believe this is Jesus, the Messiah. Or I will not believe this is Jesus as Messiah. They're condemning him. They're condemning him. By the way, the fact that it mentions mighty works and they weren't used to him doing mighty works proves that as a child, he didn't do mighty works. Pre-anointing, pre-baptism, he didn't do mighty works no matter what the Apocrypha says. He wasn't the boy who created things. Um, uh, 
in miraculous ways because the anointing of the Holy Spirit for him to do that work had not happened yet. And they were not used to him doing that. They're saying instead, verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Who is this guy think he is? William Barclay said it is natural that some, at some time Jesus would pay a visit to Nazareth. He had been brought up there and yet it was a brave thing to do. The hardest place for a preacher to preach is in the church where he was a boy. The hardest place for a doctor to practice is a place where they knew him when he was young. So Jesus wasn't respected for his position. He wasn't respected for his hometown place. And then he's not respected now for his pedigree. That's verse 55. His pedigree, his upbringing. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? Oh, they're kind of taking him apart based on his pedigree. They're not denying the wisdom of his preaching. That's what's wild. They're acknowledging the wisdom of his preaching. They're acknowledging the mighty works. They're saying those things are at play, but we just can't get past the fact that Joseph was your daddy. Mary was your mom. We know your half brothers by name and you got all these sisters. So you can't be any more special than that. They are blasé on Jesus. That's what they are. They are, as the old adage puts it, familiarity breeds contempt. They're just at odds with them. They can't get past it. They, here's what sinners do, that, that they see the power of God, they see the gospel, they see the uniqueness of scripture, they know it's one of a kind, they know Jesus is the only way, but their sin makes them rationalize all of that away and they go, I just can't let go of my sin and really believe in this kind of Jesus. It's the Jesus described to us in scripture. In scripture, they say he's a local boy, We were childhood friends. We watched him grow up. We're dismissing all of that by saying he's part of the carpenter's son family. Um, Mark chapter 6 verse 3 says it a different way. It says that the people said, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother James and Joseph, which is an abbreviation for, you know, a nickname for Joseph and Judas and Simon. They're they're basically showing uh, the two um, representations is not Matthew saying, is not this the carpenter's son? And Mark saying, is not this the carpenter shows that Joseph was the artisan. He was the, he was the town or the village carpenter. He was the home builder. He owned that he owned the business of building houses. He was a home builder. That's what he was, an artisan. A carpenter can also be mason worker. So he was stoneworking, uh, carpentry. Um, it was a craftsmanship business that then when Joseph died, which I assume he did because he sort of flies off the radar in terms of any narratives after the early years of Jesus, those early childhood years up to 12, that's the last place we hear of Joseph. Joseph and Mary scrambling, looking for Jesus. I mean, who were they as parents? They lost him for three days. I mean, probably assumed him dead. They can't find him. He's at the temple. He's in Jerusalem. So people are going, who are these people? Who's Jesus think he is? He's Joseph's son, but Jesus would have taken over the carpentry business as the carpenter. That's what Mark 6, 3 is implying. He's a carpenter. Who's this woodworker that's coming up and telling us the word of God? Who does he think he is? So not... 
um, a title or a position or a place, a hometown, or a pedigree is going to defend who you are. Justin Martyr, incidentally, AD 150, some 50, 60, 70 years after Christ, um, made, uh, said that, that Jesus as a carpenter had made plows and yokes. So that could have been some early history about what Jesus was doing before he went into full-time ministry. I think Jesus was um, raised in a reputable family, though. Joseph and Mary were believers. Joseph didn't um, put Mary away, but believed what the angel said, that, that she had become pregnant by the Holy Spirit through immaculate conception. Um, Mary was known as a plain, um, young, simple girl who um, demonstrated a massive amount of faith in prayer, very similar to Hannah in 1 Samuel, where she's just coming before the Lord, exuberant, excited, seeing God's kingdom rising and falling in the fact that he's sovereign and he was sovereign to select her, humble Mary, to um, carry the baby Jesus. And it's amazing. So that's Joseph and Mary. These are believers. Joseph, who raised these five sons, including Jesus. You have four listed by name, half brothers of Jesus, but a, a family of five brothers and then several sisters. You don't regularly think about Jesus as having sisters, but there's a large family. And maybe Joseph died early, was killed, or some unfortunate thing happened. And we know also that these half-brothers weren't believers right away. So when Jesus was performing miracles, they were tempting him in John 7 for not even his brothers had believed in him. But then in Acts 1.14, the seeds that were sown in family worship came to fruition where in the upper room, the 120 are gathered and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there and his brothers. So you have brothers who are believers. So I think these four listed are believers. You have James who wrote the book of James. This is the half-brother of Jesus who's known to have wrote, written the book of James. Joseph, who's named for his dad, Joseph, Simon, and then Judas, who shortened that to Jude. That's where we get the book of Jude. Uh, these are authors and, of the scripture and believers. So the parents weren't perfect. We know the mother and the brothers, they had a lapse in judgment where they tried to take Jesus off the mission field at one point, Mark 3, 20 and 21. They tried to seize him. They said he's out of his mind because he wasn't eating while he was working. But even though they weren't perfect, they were good testimonies. They were good testimonies. So this was a total um, indictment on the crowds for for missing the fact that Jesus is Messiah. They're trying to humanize Jesus on a level where they don't believe in him. And I just want to say this, there, there's been a trend ever since I've been alive and I've known of this where people try to dumb Jesus down. And I, I get really spooked by that where people talk about, well, Jesus had acne, Jesus skinned his knees and they want, you know, relate to Jesus as your buddy and friend, he's sympathetic. Jesus is always the hypostatic union. He's also always fully God and fully man, always two natures, one person. He is God, very God. He is the I am of Exodus chapter three. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's the exalted vision of Isaiah six where the train of his robe is filling the temple. He's the merciful, sympathetic high priest who's empathetic and sympathetic with every need and everything that's going on in our life and lives because he experienced them to the fullest extent yet without sin. So how do you put that together? Yet without sin means fully human and fully God. God at the same time. That's Jesus. 
And so where you have, whether narrative um, portrayals, theatrical portrayals of Jesus, um, those are not extra commentaries for me on how I can worship Jesus. My one revelation for how I worship Jesus and the only way I can come and worship the Son of Man is to worship him through the eyes of Scripture in illumined faith. That's it. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one for whom people despised. They, they rejected him and pushed back on him because they saw him through superficiality. He's the carpenter's son. His mom's married. These are his brothers. These are his sisters. They dumb Jesus down. Dumbing Jesus down to make him relatable is an error. It is an error. People worship Jesus for like his powers or his morality or his humanity but you have to worship Jesus as he's portrayed in scripture, all of who Jesus is. The apostle Peter and John, they were described in Acts 4 in a similar way. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. People were astonished at them as well. But some followed. Some followed Jesus and some followed the apostles, the teaching of Christ. But many in astonishment will digress. And if you follow the mood of this text, they move from being astonished to being incredulous to being sarcastic to finally, if you look at verse 56 or verse 57, and they took offense at him. They're asking in verse 56, where did this man get all these things? You know, his sisters are with us, his brothers. Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense. And the word offense here is, um, scandalos, that's where we get the word scandalon, stumbling block. Every reference to um, any Greek word, scandalizomai or what have you, is always talking about stumbling over Jesus, where people literally make Jesus the most offensive thing in their life. The, the biggest, watch this, the, the saddest thing is when the largest obstacle in someone's life for them coming to God becomes Jesus. The largest obstacle in their life for coming to God becomes Jesus. They go, I can't get there from here. I just can't believe in God because of Jesus. How horrible is that? The way to God is through Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man come to the Father but through me. But someone who is who is enslaved in self-gratification, the self-gratification of sin will make Jesus into an obstacle instead of a bridge to God, a barrier. I drove up, um, this is no diss on the public transportation of, uh, of Anchorage or roads or things like that. I respect it all. And I understand, you know, you got to pour the tar when the, when the rain stops, right? But yesterday I was driving up, I'm driving up Birch and I'm going up to O'Malley to that stoplight and I get all the way up there and there's literally a, a sign that I didn't see signs before, but it was Saturday. I wasn't paying attention and you just have to stop. And I could not go any farther. I had to turn the car around and go back down the hill and figure out a different way to get around. And some of you might've had to do that, but that's, that's a picture of what this barrier looks like. It's like where you, you think you're going to God and you're going all the way up the hill and you're going to get there and you're going to get there and you just go, nope, I'm blocked. I'm not going any farther. Jesus, you are this stumbling block. You're a scandal on to me. You're a scandal. I will not take you for your word. 
I will not believe in a God who's going to bring out both the old and the new from the word of God, both the accountability and the grace at the same time. I can't get there from here. Jesus becomes a stumbling block. People want the treasure. They want the pearl, but they aren't willing to sell everything to have the one thing. Jesus ultimately says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. This is boiling that phrase down. You can boil it down to one thing. It's the sin of familiarity. It's where people become so familiar with Jesus or so familiar with their understanding of who they think Jesus is that he's just blah to them. He's just blase. He's not exciting. He's not worthy of our worship. It's where people just have him all figured out. They'll say, yes, he's powerful. Yes, he brings an amazing message. But is he really worthy of my full allegiance? Is he really worthy of my worship? Is he really worthy of my full respect? We've given Jesus a hearing. I gave him a look. But he's not going to be Lord of my life. I'm not going to give everything to him. That's what people do when Jesus is a scandal on, a stumbling block, when he's not honored. We're familiar with him, and it's dangerous to become over-familiar with him where you say, yeah, I'll be familiar with Jesus, I'll know who he is, but I want to figure out my life through media, through medical means, through psychology. These are the things that will figure out what I need. But then when desperation hits, that's when people really turn to Jesus. When the slats fall out of your life and you say, I'm desperate for Jesus, And that's often when you see people give Jesus the reverence that he deserves. Well, how bad off are people who are blasé with Jesus? Well, look at verse 58. And he did not do many many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You would think that if his local hometown people begin to reject him, they're, they're offended by him, they've been sarcastic to him, they've been incredulous about him, they, they were astonished about him. You would say, yeah, I want, if I'm Jesus, I'm going to do more mighty works and I'm going to preach harder to try to win and woo the people that I know love me. Jesus does the opposite. The harder the hearts, the fewer the miracles. Spurgeon said, why spend sacred energy where he would have chosen to do the most? He was forced to do the least. He saw it would have been wasted. Mark's account in Mark 6, 5, it says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was protecting people from themselves. He didn't want the hardness of their heart to get worse and worse. He didn't want to be reduced to being a sideshow. Jesus is not to be reduced to that. So what does this mean for us? We're kingdom citizens. We've believed Matthew 13. We embrace the teachings of the parable and we're willing to submit our minds to this kind of transformation. A metamorphosis, a process of dying to self. We find ourselves, we are the true scribe who's a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. We have stewardship over what is new and what is old But we have to calibrate and recalibrate our expectations to understand that people will polarize away from us and even come against us. But that's not the point. 
we're faithful. We love people. We love those who love us. We love who those who might be our enemies. We love them. We trust God with his message. And we just, just bring out the treasure. Go back. Go back. Look at that. He brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. We just preach Christ. We trust his message to do its work. And we live in peace because God is sovereign over the outcomes. Now, I want to read this last quote. And it sort of turns things on to you as a congregation, as listeners. And this isn't about me, but it's about being attentive in church. (laughs) Listen to this. We don't want to be the crowds in the synagogue. We want to be those who are listening to the Lord. There's a great lesson here. The writer says, in any church service, the congregation preaches more than half the sermon. Listen to that. The congregation preaches more than half the sermon. The congregation brings an atmosphere with it. That atmosphere is either a barrier through which the preacher's word cannot penetrate or else it is such an expectancy that even the poorest sermon becomes a living flame. Again, we should not judge a man on his background or his family connections and by what he is. Many a message has been killed stone dead, not because there was anything wrong with it, but because the minds of the hearers were so prejudiced against the messenger that it never had a chance. When we meet together to listen to the word of God, we must come with eager expectancy and must think not of the man who speaks, but of the spirit who speaks through him. Listen to the Holy Spirit. That's the point.